Two Cities Church, have I told you lately how much I love you? I am so grateful for you in this church, and I especially felt it on Monday night at our prayer and worship night. I don't know if you were able to be there, but I wanna show you some pictures from our night of prayer and worship. It was incredible. We had over 450 people in here worshiping and praying together. We had 70 kids in the building next door. It was such an incredible time. In fact, I was, we were in the middle of worship, worship one, one, of the, one or two of the songs, and I just am so excited. Pastor Dave couldn't be here, so I text Pastor Dave, and I say, Aslan is on the move. Remember Aslan from the book, Narnia, okay. Well, I said, Aslan's on the move, and I, and I look back down after we sing a song, it auto-corrected, it said, Asians are on the move. <laughs> He's like, what's going on in our prayer night? Uh, I met somebody outside afterwards, and she said, I almost, she said, Pastor Kyle, I almost snuck out during the last song because I needed to come out and see if the building was on fire because it was so passionate. But my favorite story is actually this young lady, she came out after the service, I'd never seen her before. She comes up, she introduces herself, she says, I live in the apartments right behind here. She said, every Saturday night I drive by and this place is packed. And every Sunday morning I drive by and this place is packed. And every Sunday night I drive by and this place is packed. She said, so when I drove by Monday night, I said, that's it, I'm coming in. <laughs> I said, what an introduction to our prayer and worship night. You know, but she said it was just what she needed. Guys, we are trying to create a culture of prayer and worship, an environment and an atmosphere of prayer. We're trying to say here that everything we do which is really making and mobilizing disciples. We want it to be done in an environment of prayer and worship. We want that to be what happens in your home, in your community group, people that pray with each other, pray for each other. And, and guys, we are, I keep saying this, but we are as a church in a season of transition and anticipation and expectation as this is really the year of leaping for us. We're heading into this new building, still hoping to be there by Christmas Eve services. And what I wanna just tell you about is, is real quick is our weekender. If for some reason you've been coming around, you still not come to our weekender. We've got our last one that's gonna be before the summer starts, right, right after Easter, is April 21st and 22nd. And here's what I feel. Like every, every weekend I'm here, I always feel like, man, I just want, I want more people to experience this. When I'm at the prayer night and we're, we're singing together, I'm like, man, I just want more people to experience this. When I'm, when I'm at my community group and it's, we're sharing needs and we're praying for one another and we're applying the Bible, I'm like, man, I just want more people to experience this. So if you still, for some reason, are on the fringes, we wanna invite you to the front lines with us. If, if you find yourself and you're like, well, I've more, been more of a spectator, we wanna invite you to be a participator because here's our heart here. We would love, as much as you want us to, we'd love to come alongside you to help better disciple you and your family. But for us to do that effectively, you need to connect to our church meaningfully. So if you've, if you've not yet done it, this is a great time before summer gets crazy to take the next step, to come to our weekender. It's the inroad and on-ramp into the life of our church. There aren't two ways or 10 ways to get connected. There's one. So let me pray for us. Thank God for this night of prayer and worship that we had. And then we're gonna be in our second to last sermon uh, in this series on the book of uh, Joshua. Let's pray. Lord, I, I am so grateful for what we got to experience on Monday night here. And uh, we're just so excited, I forgot to say this, that we, we're gonna actually be doing another prayer night on May 15th now that we're adding. And I just pray that more people would come. I pray that you would help us to build an environment and a culture and an atmosphere of prayer, that we would have homes where husbands and wives are praying with each other and for each other, where kids are asking their parents for prayer and where parents are able to say to their kids, genuinely, I have been praying for you in this area. Lord, we, we pray, we, our desire here is to take as many people with us into this next season that we feel like is so exciting. And, and we are just so grateful for all that you're doing in us and through us. And so I pray if there's anyone in here who needs to take that next step to get deeper into the life of our church, to connect their family 
in a timely and consistent and strategic and meaningful way to our church that they would take that next step. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you know this or not, there are three great statements in the New Testament. Now, you probably know one or two of them, but I don't know that you know all three. So the first one, I'll just give you the easiest one. It's the Great Commission. Remember that one? JD, actually, when he was here a few weeks ago, he taught on the Great Commission out of John chapter 20, right? As the Father has sent me, so I send you. That's the Great Commission. Probably most famous is Matthew 28. Remember that? Jesus says, uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, right? Go, make, baptize, teach them everything. We know that. We love that. That's why we plant churches and send missionaries and pray for our lost neighbors and do personal evangelism. We love the Great Commission. There's a second grade I don't want us to forget. It's called the Great Commandment. You know that one, right? That's that, that moment where uh, this guy comes up to Jesus, and this isn't easy to do, but he's Jesus, so he can do it. And they ask him, hey, how would you summarize all the commandments, and what's the greatest commandment? He basically summarizes it all and says, here's the greatest commandment. Love God and love each other. It's like, wow. In fact, later in John 13, he says something. He goes, actually, let me double click on that. He says, actually, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. So he puts himself in the center of it. So we know the great commandment. We know the great commission, but I think most Christians don't know about the great compassion. You ever heard of that? The great compassion is found in Matthew 25. We're not gonna be there today, but in Matthew 25 in the New Testament, remember that, that parable that Jesus tells where both the sheep and the goats are surprised at the end? Jesus says to the goats, I was hungry and you didn't feed me and I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything. And he says to the sheep, I was hungry and you fed me and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was in prison and you visited me. And, and both sides go, when did we do this and when did we not do this? And he said, whenever you did it to the least. The great compassion is to care for the needy and the vulnerable, the least and the last and the leftovers of society. And it's probably the great statement that we forget the most. Well, if you'll type to or turn to Joshua 20, I'm gonna show you the great compassion in the Old Testament. Now, as we get there, I know you're thinking, okay, Joshua 20. Wait a second, Kyle. Last week we were in Joshua 9. What happened? Well, let me just summarize what happens in chapters 10 through 19. It's very, very quickly. Uh, chapters 10 and 11, they fight more battles. They experience more victories. Praise the Lord. They don't have any more defeats. We talked about their two defeats already. Uh, but here's what's neat. Verse, chapters 12 through 19 is, is the division of the land. That's actually the whole center of the book is the division of the land. And I, I want us to learn two principles uh, that I well, don't have a lot of time to cover that come out of chapters 12 through 19, and before we jump into chapter 20. The first is that uh, when you win the battles, when you win the victories with the Lord, the best thing you can do is come back and share it with everybody. See, that's what they did. They won, they have the whole promise. Then what, then what do they do? They, well, they break it up into 12 different parts and they give every tribe a part. This is like the greatest thing ever. Remember the old, kind of the oldest stories that we tell, like they're mythical, but some of the old stories that humanity tells and that are written on caves is, remember the story of like the guy who fights the dragon? And the dragon, for some reason, always has gold. We're not sure why he has gold and how he got it. But then, but then you fight the dragon, and then you get the gold, and then what do you do? What's the great leader and great warrior do? He brings the gold back to the community, and he shares it with everyone he loves. The principle is when you win a battle in your life, the best thing for you to do is to come back and to share the victory, share the lessons learned, share the experiences with everyone you know. That's why we do the uh, testimonies. Why are we showing these videos where people are like, hey, I used to struggle with this, and our marriage this, and... We had a hard time with our kids on this and God was faithful and then they come back and they share. The second principle, I think, from the division of land that we need to learn is that two of the 12 tribes didn't do well with the division of land. Why? Because they tried to live on both sides of the Jordan. They tried to live in the wilderness and in the promised land and how do you become exhausted and ineffective as a Christian? You're not fully in with Christ. You're still trying to partially be in with the world. Those are the lessons really from chapters 12 through 19 that we're flying over. If you'll land with me in chapter 20 today, we're gonna to be introduced to something I don't think many of us have ever heard of or ever been taught of before. 
It's the great compassion in the Old Testament. It's the cities of refuge. I don't know if you ever heard of that. But look at me at verse one. I'll show you what happens here. Verse one, look at, look at this. Then the Lord said to Joshua, okay, full stop. Uh, this is the last time God speaks directly and personally to Joshua. Uh, after, he, after Joshua fights the last battle, he doesn't seem to forget to, vi- to divide up the land and make sure that all the people of God get what they need. But, and I'm assuming this a little bit here uh, from, from an argument of silence, uh, but basically what he does forget is he forgets about the cities of refuge. So God has to kind of knock on his door, speak to him verbally and go, hey, hold on, you're forgetting about the city of refuge. I think it's a good lesson for us to learn because I think that Christians, the temptation in the church, especially in the American church, is to forget about the vulnerable, forget about the needy, forget about those who are experiencing injustice, to forget about the least and the last, to forget about the poor and the orphan and the widow and the homeless. That's our temptation. And so God's like, okay, my final word then to Joshua is gonna be to remind him about the cities of refuge. Now, by the way, this is the fourth time God's talking to him about this. So this is, don't think this is like some random small passage that Kyle's gonna try to make a big deal about. No, no, this is taught in Exodus. It's taught in Numbers. It's taught in Deuteronomy. In fact, look what he says in verse two. He says, say to the people of Israel, point the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. Hey, Joshua, don't forget about the cities of refuge. Now, what were the cities of refuge? This is important to understand. Well, there were six of them. And so God strategically placed these six cities of refuge. Three were on one side of the Jordan, three were on the other side of the Jordan. Here's what tradition tells us, pretty cool. The cities of refuge were always only one day away from where anyone would live. So the first principle of the city of refuge is you could get to the city of refuge in a time of need within one day, which is very important. Not only that, the roads were really wide. The roads to the cities of refuge were twice as wide as any other roads in all of Israel because they wanted to make it easy for those in need to find help. Not only that, but it was some of the best signage. There were signs everywhere, tradition tells us, for how to get to these cities. Why? Because we'll see in a minute, if you need a city of refuge, you're probably not in the right mind. You may have somebody after you. You may not know where you are or how to get to the nearest one. And so these cities of refuge show up. Now, look at verse three and four. We'll kind of see what's going on here. Look at this. That, here's, what they, here's the purpose. That the manslayer, now who is the manslayer? Well, we'll get into it. Here we get a definition here that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the, oh, this guy sounds scary, the avenger of blood, okay? So we gotta talk about both these. First of all, the manslayer, who's the manslayer? Well, if you're looking for the most literal wooden example of it, it's right in the text. It's somebody who committed involuntary manslaughter, right? It's somebody, back then, I mean, the world's always been dangerous, but I mean, you wanna talk about the world being dangerous back then. It's like somebody could be in the field, they could both be working in agriculture and someone's shovel could hit somebody else in the head by accident, that person could die. And then what if, what if the only other people, what if it was just you and the guy with the shovel? Are they gonna believe that you didn't kill him? Or what if it's you and the guy, you, you kill the guy, but it's you and his brother and now his brother's mad at you and his brother's gonna try to come after you. So the cities of refuge were a place, here, here's what they were, and you'll see this more in a second. They were a place where you could be safe and be heard. They weren't a place necessarily where you wouldn't be judged, but you wouldn't experience judgmentalism. You would get a fair judgment and a fair trial. Now, hear me out. Uh, A city of refuge, what is a refuge, right? A refuge literally is a place of shelter in time of storm or suffering. Here's what it's not. It's not a safe space. Have you heard of safe spaces? Hopefully not, but probably you have. I mean, safe, safe, safe spaces, you know, if, you, if you're a part of a big company and it's got a big HR department, sadly, you probably have safe spaces. Uh, if you're a part of some, you know, elite school, they, they think it's cool to have safe spaces. 
Safe spaces in those environments basically tell you, here's a place you can go and you won't be judged. Here's a place you can go and you can escape people you don't like and be with people that have the same ideology as you. A safe space is a place where people go to escape the truth. A city of refuge is where people go because they want to tell the truth and they need the help. Now, the manslayer, who is that? Okay, well, we already talked about that. That's the person who accidentally commits involuntary manslaughter, but he's got someone after him. Do you see the Avenger of Blood? If that doesn't sound like a Marvel character, right? Or a DC character, if they were having an actor play the Avenger of Blood, who would it be? Liam Neeson, right? Or something like that. He has some skill set. He's coming after you. Um, the Avenger of Blood, it's important to know this. We're dealing with some technical things this morning, but you guys can handle it. Um, it it's, uh, the Hebrew word is goel, which most times is translated. It can be translated. You go, how does this work? It can either be translated kinsman redeemer or avenger of blood. You go, how does that work? Well, the goel was somebody in the family whose job was redemption or retribution. In other words, so most times you hear about the goel, it's positive. Like all the ladies love the book of Ruth. When great Boaz, right? Boaz, I heard a sermon years ago, marry a Boaz, not a bozo. Okay, that's what it was. <laughs> Where the great Boaz, he's the kinsman redeemer and he comes in and he marries the widow and he keeps the family line and that was part of what the redeemer did. The redeemer is also someone who your land was taken from you or you were tricked into this big high interest rate debt thing. He comes in, he negotiates it, he pays it off. Uh, you find yourself enslaved, he frees you and buys you back. So there was a lot of things that he did that was redemptive. The avenger of blood also handled revenge. So if somebody killed your brother, Somebody killed your sister, somebody killed your mom, somebody killed your dad. You went and you got the goel. And you said, I need you to take care of this and I need you to eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I need you to get back at him. So what happens in this situation though is, and here's what I want you to understand, the manslayer, the church has always understood the manslayer represents not just the person who commits involuntary manslaughter. It, it, commit, it stands for any person who is vulnerable any person who's needy, any person who's experiencing injustice, and the church is to be a city of refuge. Let me give you a couple examples of the manslayer today. A couple examples of that today would be, well, think about the unborn, obviously. Although the sad thing is they can't run to a city of refuge. So if you ever see a pregnancy care center, I want you to, when you think of Joshua chapter 20, think city of refuge usually led by strong Christian women. You go in there and it's like, right? The avenger of blood is after every woman who comes in there. It's like, it's the husband, it's the father, it's the, God forbid, the grandfather, it's the boyfriend. And these women who are leading these pregnancy care centers are trying to fight for life for our invisible and silent neighbor in the womb, the unborn, the preborn. So that would be one type of manslayer that we need to defend. A second would be victims of sexual or physical abuse, right? So why don't people who are sexually abused tell others a lot of the time? Or why are kids who experience sexual or physical abuse, why don't they tell anyone? Because there's a cost to raising the alarm, sounding the alarm. Right? I know the Me Too movement is a mixed bag and people have different feelings about it, but one of the things that that did was it reminded us of how prevalent sexual abuse is. From the stats I read this week, one in six women at some point in their life 
will experience sexual abuse, right? And the Me Too movement was like, well, you, you see it in the movement, Me Too. Hey, maybe if all of us talk about this, it might be a little bit safer. Victims of sexual abuse, victims of physical abuse, they need a place where they're safe and they need a place where they can be heard. How about foster kids and those who need adopted? Could your home, this is what our, we're praying for. We, we launched a foster care and adoptive uh, adoption ministry. I told you my wife and I are involved in that as well. And you know, it's interesting. We're, our, we're praying, could, our, could there be dozens and dozens of homes with two cities members in them who said, you know what, we could be a city of refuge for someone in foster care who's done nothing wrong but would fit in the category of needy and vulnerable. So I want us to understand this, the conviction here is that, we'll see this in a little bit, that Jesus Christ is ultimately our city of refuge, but that God wants the church to be a city of refuge in every city it finds itself in. So what I wanna do is I wanna give you four biblical principles from this text that help inform how we think about ourselves as a city of refuge. Let me give you them. The first is from this text, we see the principle of law and order. Isn't it amazing? God is the God of law and order. If you wanna go you know, theologically and foundationally, where do law and order come from? God. God is the giver of law. It's the, you know, it's the uh, representation of his own character. The first thing God does in Genesis chapter one is bring order out of chaos. And I just think sometimes we don't appreciate the world we live in. The fact that we have a court system in which we believe that people are innocent until proven guilty is an unbelievable achievement of Western civilization that came out of a distinctly Judeo-Christian worldview. I mean, for, if you read, I mean, human history is horrible, right? If you know anything about human history, if you've read any books on just what human history has been like, it's been mostly chaos. For most of human history, most places you live, the normal thing was chaos and lawlessness not order and law, not the rule of law, right? I mean, do you remember a couple years ago, there was a bunch of things connected with this. People were calling defund the police. Are you kidding me? That's lawlessness and chaos. Now, do police departments need to be reformed? I'm sure they do, especially certain ones. Does sin infect and affect everything? Of course they do. But I want us to see that what God did when he wanted to deal with sin and suffering is he set up systems and structures to deal with it. First principle, the principle of law and order flowing from the character of God. Unbelievable that this existed thousands and thousands of years ago and particularly made a place for the needy, the vulnerable, um, and those experiencing injustice. Secondly, the principle of sanctity of life. This is an unbelievable reality too. Again, that every person is valuable. Here's the sanctity of life. Humanity is highly valued. See, we live in a culture that is so confused. It's like, oh yeah, we're just a little you know, more highly evolved than the animals, right? And every once in a while, they'll try to show you that. They're like, all right, now listen, you're not gonna believe this. We saw a, a, um, a chimpanzee and he was able to, he had this coconut and he used a rock to crack open the coconut. Do you see how smart they are? It's like, listen, we have the International Space Station. We win. <laughs> There's no comparison. We are so high above. Humanity plays a unique role, highly above the animals, but under God. Now we live in a society that's confused and this is what you would expect. A, a, a 
society that's haunted by a Judeo-Christian worldview that it had for a long time, but is, is no longer tethered to that, you'll see, you'll see kind of good and bad with them together. So here's what you'll see. You'll see people who, it seems like the average American values life, except if that life's in the womb. And then you can kill it. Or I was listening to a guy, and I can't remember if he was in Australia or Europe, he was in somewhere like that. And he was saying that during COVID, he said, he was talking about his government. He said, my government locked down uh, you know, everybody and they told us stay inside and do all this stuff and we're gonna do it for, we're gonna sacrifice for the elderly. And he said, just say for a moment, say, say you trust the government, that was really the reason they did it. He said, that would be a very Christian value. Let's suffer and sacrifice for the vulnerable. He said, the problem was, as soon as the government reopened up, the first thing they started to do was pass bills to euthanize and help with assisted suicide, the elderly people. Do you see how that doesn't make sense? Now I know this because we did this building and we're doing another building. Whenever you do a building, um, what you find out is there are a lot of things you have to do for people with disabilities. Praise the Lord, amen. This many parking spots and this ramp and this needs to be accessible and there needs to be an elevator. It's just like, it's a lot and it's very expensive. It's fine, it's great. That's part of the image of God. We're gonna care for people with disabilities unless they're in the womb. And then we kill them. You understand that it's not that more, or it's not that less Down syndrome babies are being conceived. Less Down syndrome babies are being born. It is only the Christian worldview that is able to uniquely say you are imprinted with the image of God. So here's how you know that you're valuable. And, And people will struggle. Some of you are very insecure. Some of you struggle with depression, okay? Some of you have a very low view of yourself and the answer is not self-awareness and self-help and self-expression and self-fulfillment and all that garbage. Um, Here's what it is. Here's what you need to realize, two things. God didn't make junk, Jesus didn't die for junk. As soon as you get that, you have to feel that. You gotta meditate on that. You gotta believe that. That when God made Adam, he spoke everything else into existence, then he gets involved and he forms Adam personally and imprints on him the Imago Dei so that, every person bears the very image of the living God and will live forever. And then Jesus, I don't know that what you can tell a person to give them higher value than the God of the universe sent his only son to die a painful death because you were worth it and he loved you that much. So we live in a society that's confused about the sanctity of life. Here we are thousands of years ago, God puts up structures to care for every person, especially the people we'd forget. Third, the principle of justice and mercy, right? When we talk about ourselves, what do we want? Mercy. When we talk about others, what do we want? Justice. We're confused. Uh, we can't, uh, symbolically, Christians and Jews alike have, uh, have looked at God as having two hands, the hand of justice and the hand of mercy, and they must be balanced. So in the Old Testament, there was what was called the lex talionis. You've heard of it. It's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus quotes it in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that he kind of expands and enhances on it and teaches some things. Well, we hear it, and rightly so, probably. You, you probably hear it with your modern sensibilities, and you think, oh, that sounds archaic. That sounds primitive. It was actually a limiting principle, and it was actually the grace of God, because what tends to happen is when somebody does something to us, we don't want to just get them back to the same level. We want to get them back worse. And if you don't believe me, listen to any Taylor Swift song, okay? <laughs> Somebody knocks out our tooth, we want to give them dentures. Permanently. 
So it was a limiting principle to say you can only do to other people what they did to you. But then the cities of refuge are this image of the complexity and comprehensive nature of justice. So, by the way, if you're interested in anything I'm saying uh, here and you want to read more about this, I recommend two books, Generous Justice by Tim Keller and another book called When Helping Hurts. Both are very, very helpful. But Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, he, he talks about the word justice, which is the Hebrew word mish, mishpah. And here's what he says, that uh, we tend to not have a understanding of the word justice. In fact, it's kind of a, it's an explosive word. Like even as I start to even tread around it, it's like, what will we say when it comes to justice, right? And if you use the phrase social justice, it means 15 things to four different people. And there's a whole, it's probably more of an in, internal debate and dialogue among Christians of like, can that word even be, can that phrase even be redeemed, social justice? Or do we need to go and just create a whole new category of biblical justice and talk about the difference between biblical justice and social justice? Well, all of that aside, let me just tell you what the Hebrew word for justice means. Give people what they deserve. Now, whenever you say that, here's what people think. Punishment, that's what they deserve. <laughs> Give him life. Fire her. Like, we tend to think, when, we, when you hear, give a person what they deserve, you tend to think, I tend to think, punishment. But if you look at the word justice, and you do kind of what's called a biblical theology, and a biblical theology is when you trace the word. How is it used in different places of the Bible? It always means to give people what they're due or what they deserve, but sometimes it's punishment. Other times it's protection. And other times it's care. And you never quite, you got to hear everyone's case. You got to look at them and go, what does this person, what does do this person? So there's the principle of law and order. Thank God for that. There's the principle of sanctity of life, that each human is highly valued. There's the principle of mercy and justice. And then here's the fourth principle, the principle of social concern. Uh, and I hope you know this by now that we here, and I especially, am very, very careful uh, at the exact words I choose when I talk about something. And so I'm very specific when I'm using the phrase social concern, because you'll notice that's internal, that starts at the heart level. See, we live in a society that's all about social activism. We live in the volunteer, volunteer generation. Everybody wants to know, can I build wells in Africa? Is there a house that someone needs that I can go build in the Dominican Republic? I've seen this. People who have no Christian heritage, definitely are not Christians, have this desire to do volunteerism. But one pastor, he said that what's interesting, and he said that he's got all these young people in his church that they wanna do all this volunteering and they wanna do all this social activism he said they just don't want it to touch their personal lives. So he said that he'd have all these people in his church talking about the poor, but interesting, no one wanted to live among the poor. And he'd have all these people say, man, is the church given to this ministry? Is the church given to this area? And then he would, he would play the old, my favorite game to play, tag you're at, uh, hold on, are you? Have you given anything to that ministry you're asking us to give to as a church? Oh no, we, don't, we haven't. Oh, so you would like the church to give to things, but you don't personally want to give to things. This is one of the reasons why we haven't done, I'm not against it, and other churches do it, and it's fine, but this is why we haven't done a lot of like serve Sundays, which are very popular. Hey guys, hey, different, different Sunday this week. Everyone, we're going to Food Line and Harris Teeter and Lowe's, 
and we're buying canned food because then everyone comes, comes home and goes, aren't we great? Do you see what we did as a church? And then no one is willing to look in the mirror and go, I don't do anything except once a year as a church and it makes me feel good about myself. But I'm not personally involved. When you become a Christian, you experience the grace and mercy of God and it makes you want to see justice happen in the world. And the, the way that it works, the best way that it works, because people will debate on this, right? There's, there's what are, I don't know how much time I have to get into this, but there's what's called the conversionist and the transformationist. These, these are two tribes within Christianity, like evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christianity. The conversionists say, dude, all you need to worry about is people's souls. That's it. Don't worry about anything else. That's the biggest problem. Once they're born again, they'll, you know, that's the problem. The problem in that part of the city is there's not enough born-again people. As soon as they're born again, it'll be fine. And I'm sympathetic to that thinking because it, it directly says the main problem is the problem of the heart, the problem of the soul, the supernatural power of, of the Christian faith. By the way, you know you're in that type of church because everybody in those types, that would be like the classic indie fundy churches, independent fundamentalism. And those churches think the greatest thing you could do is become an evangelist, a preacher, or a missionary. They'll come surrender to the Lord, come up here and surrender and give your life to full-time ministry because the greatest thing you could do is convert other people and the soul. Then there are the transformationists. That's Tim Keller. And the transformationists, they almost never talk about going into full-time ministry. They tell you to go into arts, business, politics, teaching. And they basically say, hey, bring your worldview and bring your Christian convictions and why don't you do everything you're doing but alleviate all different types of suffering? And I'm sympathetic to that. I think this, you know, we're, we're here at Two Cities, we're perfectly in the middle. I'm just kidding. No. But here's what we, we believe that every person is a soul in a body in a community. And so we think, yes, the greatest need is salvation, but there's also people who need shelter. The greatest need is forgiveness, but there's also people who need food. And sometimes people are so hungry they can't hear the gospel. You know, most of us can't even imagine an environment, but some people's lives are so unstable and they have so many temporary, temporal and immediate needs that if those needs are not met in a timely and consistent way, they're not gonna have the space and margin to hear the gospel. Okay, that was a long excursion on the biblical principles. Let's go back to the text. I wanna show you something in verse uh, uh, five and, or verse six. If you'll turn me to verse six, I want you to see something. Verse six, we are given the names of the cities. It says this, and he shall remain in the city until he stood before the congregation for judgment. Look at this. Until the death of him who is the high priest at the time, then the manslayer may return to his own town in his own home to the town from which he fled. So basically, very interesting. One of the things about this was if, whenever you went to this city, you had to stay in the city until the high priest died. Which if you show up in the high priest is 97, you're like, this is cool, you know? But if you show up in the high priest is 35, you're like, I'm gonna be here the rest of my life. But it was the high priest, his death then counted for yours symbolically and you were able to leave. But look at the name of the cities. I, I won't read you all verse seven and eight, but I want you to see the six cities in there. Kadesh, Shechem, Hebron, Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. What I wanna do, so the conviction here is that the church is to be a city of refuge. And I think these six words tell us what a city of refuge, a church that's functioning as a city of refuge should feel like. 
So God names these cities, okay? The first name of the first city is Kadesh. Do you know what Kadesh means? Righteousness. What should the church feel like for everybody, but especially the needy and the vulnerable and those experiencing injustice? It's a place of righteousness. What does that mean? We do the right things here. We have the right motives here. We're gonna go about things the right way, which is all you have when you deal with the messiness and complexity of people who are vulnerable, needy, and experiencing injustice. It's like, how do you know, right? You gotta hear their cases and who knows if they're telling you the truth and who knows how much it's their fault and how much it's someone else's fault. And It's very easy to get, this is why most people don't do mercy ministry because it's very messy. And the only way through mercy ministry is telling the truth. It's the only way. You're like, I don't know where I'm going. Tell the truth. I don't know what to do. Do the right thing. Well, someone will get mad. Well, the wealthy people in the church won't like it. Well, this other family won't come in. I don't care. We do the right thing here. It's our, it's our North Star. We do the right thing. That's the only way out of confusing and complex situations. What do you do with a single mom? We do the right thing. What do you do with a homeless person? We do the right thing. The second thing is Shechem. Shechem is shoulder. That's very interesting. Your shoulder in the Bible is symbolic of that which you lean on and that which carries you. So you've heard this before, I need a shoulder to cry on, right? right? So part of it is we are a place of rest for people. We are a shelter, that's what it is. It's raining outside, proverbially, symbolically. In here, it's dry, it's safe, it's a place to rest. But the shoulder is also that which carries things. I mean, especially back then, that's what they did. The way they carried everything was their shoulder. The shoulder was about strength. Here's what you do when you're dealing with any, this isn't just, this is any person in our church, but especially maybe people with need, is you're always trying to figure out according to Galatians 6, what load they need to carry and what burden the church needs to bear. So Galatians 6 says each person has to carry their own load, but we should bear each other's burdens. The problem in mercy ministry sometimes is the person wants you to carry their load. It's like, sorry, ma'am, sorry, man. I, don't, I will not do for you what you can do for yourself. Like I had a pastor. He said that one time a guy called him and said, hey, man, I'm really struggling to get up for work. Can you call me every morning and wake me up? Are you kidding me? Getting out of bed is a load we all have to bear on our own. But that's, that, that's what will happen in mercy ministry sometimes. There's, right? Sometimes the church doesn't bear the burdens it needs to bear. And that's where we need to repent. And sometimes the person wants us to start carrying their load. And a principle of mercy ministry is you never do for another person what they can do for themselves. The third word in the Hebrew is the word Hebron, which is the word fellowship in the Old Testament. Now that's a beautiful picture because here's what, and you can understand this. Here's what would happen for the manslayer. Okay, so you, you, know, you accidentally kill somebody and uh, the, the avenger bloods after you. Guess what your family and friends do in almost every situation? They back away. They shouldn't, but they do. They're afraid. They don't want to be guilty by association. They don't need any more problems. Life's hard enough, and they don't need the Avenger blood on their trails well. So basically, when somebody shows up at a city of refuge, they basically have nobody and nothing. And so part of what the church does as a city of refuge is it says, okay, fellowship, but what's, what's the, you know, the, the heart of the word fellowship is sharing, but it's, it's the idea of relationship. And, and you'll see people, we see people all the time, they come out of broken families broken lifestyles, 
transient living where they've lived in seven different cities in the last six years and they don't have a great relationship with their parents and they've ruined their life and they show up at church and it's like, all right, great, we'll be your brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll let you see what a real family looks like. We'll let you see what a godly marriage looks like. We'll let you see what godly children look like. We'll let you see what it looks like to live in community and to one another, one another. Fourth, Beezer. Now, if I get a dog, that's what I'm naming them. Okay, that is an awesome name. It's the idea, I've already hit on it, so I'll just hit it briefly. It's the idea of fortress. It's the idea of safety and protection, which has been key. Fifth, Ramoth. It's the idea of heights. That's what it means. It's, it's called the heights. It's because, I love that image. It's because it's saying that when people come to the city of refuge, they're in a very low place. Most times when somebody's coming to the church and viewing it as a city of refuge and they're vulnerable and they're needy and they're weak and they're tired and they're experiencing some type of injustice, they are normally in a valley. And I love what the city of refuge says. We're gonna meet you in the valley. We're gonna meet you where you are, but we're not gonna keep you where you are. We're gonna get you back up to a mountaintop. And then finally, Golan means enclosed. It means nothing gets in and nothing comes out. It's the idea that you're safe here, not just physically. You're safe here. We're not going to gossip. You're not, this is not going to define your life. You're not going to be just known from the sins of your past. We're going to, we always say this here, that we want to handle the fine china of your life with care. I mean, you know, we, when someone shares something with us, we only share it with anyone who would need to know, which is normally very, very, very few people. Because that's the principle Jesus taught us. Remember when he says, hey, uh, the principle is you, you keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. Remember, he's like, hey, if you need to go to your brother because you've got something against him, go by yourself. If you won't listen, grab one or two other people. It's the principle of keeping the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. Okay, so what we've talked about, I want you to see this. What we've talked about is what is a city of refuge, who is it for, avenger of blood, manslayer, biblical principles, how it feels and functions. I, I want to just take a few minutes, I feel like I'd be remiss if not, to talk about how do we think about this as a church? Because we do feel a responsibility. Look, we're heading into the center of downtown. I mean, that area, I don't know what you want to call it, under-resourced and up-and-coming. Urban poor and urban trendy. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, you know, you, you, there's brand new, you know, young people moving into that part of the city, and then there's some of our greatest nonprofit neighbors who are doing ministry to the homeless and the poor. It's all right there. And so we feel a responsibility to just articulate. That's why I felt like this passage was important for us to talk about. How are we as a church going to try to be a city of refuge? First, we're always going to think organizations, not just situations. I've told you that for years, but basically here's what that means, that we want to partner with all expressions of the body of Christ to meet felt and forever needs in our city. We do not, now we're building a great building right downtown. It's gonna be awesome. But we don't think it is the city of refuge for the whole city. What the church does is point and partner with other expressions of the body of Christ. We're not gonna reinvent the wheel. We are not building 25 different unique, you know, systems and ministries for 35 different needs in our city. It's like, we already have done this before. Someone comes and they need divorce care. We already know who does that really, really well. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Somebody's dealing, you know, there's questions about child hunger, we know where. There's questions about homelessness, we know where. There's questions about food insecurity, we know where to go. We partner and point to all of the different expressions of the body of Christ. Secondly, we need to be wise in how we deal with need. So I told you about the book, When Helping Hurts. That book was written, and you should read it if you're interested in this, because most people think they're helping, and what they're doing is making themselves feel good about what they're doing while they're actually hurting the other person. 
It's very hard to, people who are in need, it's very hard for you to help and not make things worse. The chance that you will make things worse is very high if you don't know what you're doing helping someone with need. And so what they said is there's three levels. When you think about need, you need to think about relief, rehabilitation, and development. Very few people need relief. Relief is I'm in such a crisis, you have to do something for me right now. This normally happens if a tornado or a hurricane comes. This is relief is medical attention, food, shelter, clothing. Um, safe, physical safety, that's relief. You need relief. Most people need rehabilitation. Rehabilitation is they need to learn how to deal with their new normal. It's hard. You know, you talk to someone, you're like, all right, this is going to be a long process of you learning how to live without alcohol. And so we're going to give you the relationships in a Christ-centered 12-step program or whatever or a group, or we're going to help you with it. So there's relief. Almost never happens. Very, very seldom. There's rehabilitation, which is connecting people to the relationships they need to live in their new normal. And then there's development. And development is when you help them help others. Because we all know that. That's part of your healing. Part of how you heal is you stop needing to be the helped and you start being the helper. And you start seeing God redeem your past by letting you help others. Okay, now that's easy to talk about. That's fun to talk about because we're going to talk about what the church does. I want to talk for a moment about what you can do. How can you be a city of refuge? Hopefully, like if you have the spirit of God in you, if you're a Christian, you're going to want to, even though it's hard. You're going to want to be a city of refuge. Let me give you three things I think we can do for you to personally be a city of refuge. Number one, you have to stay soft. You cannot be hardened towards sin and suffering. See, I, I heard the story of a pastor. This wasn't in our church, but he went to India. And if you've ever done a mission trip, every person, let me just tell you, if you've never done a mission trip, this is what you'll experience the first 24 hours. You'll be overwhelmed by everything you see. That's every person who's ever gone on a mission trip for the first time. doesn't matter if it's Dominican Republic, China, India, doesn't matter. You go there and everybody, because I, 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 I've led trips before, everyone does, says the same thing. I cannot believe how they live here. I can't believe all the poverty. You see the children on the streets, it's filthy. I can't believe this. Well, this guy was pastor and he was, uh, it went to India and he's walking around with a missionary and he's overwhelmed in India. India is very overwhelming. I've been there, it overwhelms all five of your senses. I mean, the whole time you're there. And he's, he's saying to the guy, he goes, I'm completely overwhelmed by what I'm seeing. And he said, the missionary said to him, don't worry, you'll get used to it by the end of the week. And he said, I felt like I don't want to get used to it, but I also don't know if I can feel like this all the time, right? That's how we feel. Think in medicine. Like, I'm obviously not in medicine, but I've talked to many of you, and it's like the first year of medical school, you're crying in your car. You're like, I didn't know this many people got cancer. And you're like, oh my gosh, I just watched, I just watched the attending tell the mother that the child's not going to make it, and I just cry in my car. But by the time you get out of residency, you're like made out of wood. And you are somehow able to feel nothing. It's like, I don't know that that's maturity. We have to figure out a way to stay soft. We have to figure out a way to say, because it's hard because basically, so it's, it's two things when you stay soft. You don't harden your heart and you don't become haughty, right? That's the Bible's way of talking about pride. We think pride is like, we think I'm not prideful if I don't tell people the good things, all the successes I've had. That's not the definition of pride. The definition of pride is I look down on other people. And uh, I heard a pastor who he's been leading in mercy ministry for 20 years. He said the number one reason mercy ministry doesn't work is the spirit of superiority that is in those who do it. Let me come to your part of the city. 
and let me help you with your struggles that I've never had. I heard one guy, he said, when you go to poor parts of the city, don't ask people their needs. Ask them their dreams. It's like they have a vision, and it's actually fairly similar to your vision. Their vision for their kids are not that different than the vision you have for your kids. So you have to find a way to stay soft. And it will be hard because many of you, I mean, probably most of us, it's like, you know, you, I'm guessing, most of you have no idea what it's like to really be in physical need. And thank God, you grew up in good homes, and you, you're never been poor. You're never going to be poor. You couldn't imagine a universe in which you would be poor. But what you can say to somebody is, though I have never been where you are physically, I have been where you are spiritually. I know what it's like to be spiritually hungry. I know what it's like to be spiritually naked. I know what it's like to be spiritually fatherless. And so, therefore, the Christian has a unique resource to relate Stay soft. Secondly, get personal. Do you know anyone in need? You don't have to know a ton of people. Do you know any single mom? Do you know anyone who's like, man, this is a person, you know, here's the truth. And I'm not saying we're malevolent. I'm here to build you up, not beat you up. But let's just be honest. A lot of us have designed our lives to avoid people who are needy and vulnerable. That's why you don't go to the school you were zoned for. That's why you chose private school. That's why you homeschooled. That's why you moved a long time ago to that nice suburban neighborhood where you could be away from it all. That's why you don't travel to certain parts of the city. What would it, like, what would it be like for you to be able to put just maybe one face and one name with need? See, so this is one person, which leads to the third thing. Do something, right? I mean, you can't do everything. You heard the story of the, you probably, this is a famous story, the story of the kid, and he's walking on, he's walking at the beach, and the, there was a big storm, and so the, the, the tide's out, and there's starfish everywhere because of the storm, and he starts throwing the starfish in. I don't know if you heard of this. And his dad's a little jaded and cynical and sees all the starfish and says, come on, we got to go, and you're not going to make any difference. There's, there's thousands of starfish. And the son says, well, it means something to this one and throws the starfish in. I think it's like, what could you do? Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. How do we try to help as a church? Because it's hard. Because how do you do this? We say through the community group, could you be connected to one nonprofit that meets one need and do that a couple times a year? I feel like that's a fairly low bar of entry. Could my community group, oh, we're going to connect to the Pregnancy Care Center. Oh, we're going to connect to Samaritan's Ministry. It doesn't matter. We're going we're gonna to connect to some nonprofit that meets needs in Jesus' name, and we're going to commit to doing one thing quarterly. And that would be a great place to start. And I want to show you the motive in all this. If you look at verse 9, we get the motive. Here's the motive. Verse 9 is the final verse we got in here. It says this. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without a tent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. There's that one mention of the avenger of blood uh, one last time. Do you know who the first avenger of blood is in the Bible? God. Remember when Cain kills Abel and then God says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain famously says, am I my brother's keeper? And then God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out. What does it cry out for? To be avenged. See, the wrath of God, the technical term, the, you went the long theological term for the wrath of God. It's the retributive wrath of God. 
This is why hell is not equal for every person. Hell is not equal for Hitler as for, for somebody else. It's God pays you back according to your sins. The retributive wrath of God. God is the great avenger of blood. In fact, if you go to the book of Revelation, this is, I mean, he's mentioned many times as the avenger of blood in the Old Testament. But in the book of Revelation, remember there's this weird scene to us. There's an altar and it says there's the souls of the martyr, of the martyrs are under the altar and they cry out to God, how much longer till you avenge our blood? And God, God answers back just a little while longer. So when you realize, wait a second, actually, <laughs> let's move away from the vulnerable and the needy and all that for a moment. When you realize, wait a second, God is the great avenger of blood and we are sinful. It makes us so grateful, grateful that Jesus Christ is our city of refuge, right? Here's what that means. Here's the principle from the city of refuge. How does it point to Jesus? He's very easy to get to. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Not only that, he's for anybody. It's very clear if you read the verse nine, no matter anybody, no, no, uh, whether sojourner, anyone at any time. Also, the cities of refuge were the only place you could be safe. And the city of refuge freed you when the high priest died. When you read the book of Hebrews, what does it tell us? That Jesus Christ was our great high priest who died for us so we can be freed. The only place where the cities of refuge and Jesus, the illustration breaks apart, is that the cities of refuge were for the innocent and Jesus is for the guilty. The only thing you need to run to the city of refuge that is Jesus Christ is to confess your need for him, your guilt, and you can find refuge in him. You know, it makes me think what it was like to live in these cities of refuge. Because these cities of refuge, they were probably, I mean, they, well, there were six of them. They had people who had to live there full time. So imagine you're like the kids of the elders in that city and you have to grow up there. I wonder what you thought. I wonder if you thought something like, man, this is, I don't like living here because everyone's life is always messed up. There's always random people knocking at our door and, we, and my dad's got to figure out what, you know, whether or not they're doing the right thing. And there's, there's the Avengers of blood and they're coming at our door. And so it doesn't always feel like the safest place here. I wonder if they thought that, or I also wonder if they thought instead, which is what I think they thought, there's no greater place to live in the promised land than in a city of refuge. Because it was a place where everybody experienced the grace of God. I mean, imagine you go there, 